We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we see blessings on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Okay, so continuing our exploration of this book by Talal Asad on, on the on secularism. Uh, one point, uh, so just to recap something from, from the last class, we are looking at some core elements of how secularism operates and it ties into the, demo, uh, the democratic state. And part of the principle there is that everyone has equal rights to participate in the government and in national discussions. And there's also everyone has the right to own business and uh, to be in the market. And then everyone has citizenship focused on, on, on the individual. Some of this, we would say, is already established in our dean uh, as well. One that's very interesting that's going to take some time to try to comprehend, it's very hard to explain, is this idea of homogeneous time. Hopefully you can see it on the screen. So when we're speaking of homogeneous time, another way this is referred to is homogeneous empty time. Lamont, have you ever covered this in your studies? I think Omar is not on the line right now. Can you no, hear me? Omar is talking. No, the different one. Oh, okay. I don't know what Omar is speaking of. But, um, uh, so, so homogeneous time is, is a concept that we have in, in secularism. And the idea is that everyone, let's say you live on a street, you have your neighbors and then their neighbors and their neighbors and their neighbors. And let's say on your street, you have 50 people. So let's say, you know, nine, 10, 12 houses. And you don't know what they are doing, but if you were to imagine 10.30 Chicago time to 11.30 Chicago time, you're assuming they're doing something. They could be sleeping, could be housework, could be watching TV, whatever the case may be, that they're doing something. This is homogeneous time and homogeneous empty time means if you were to now imagine 11.30 Chicago time, which hasn't happened yet, it's not gonna happen for an hour, 11.30 to 12.30, in your brain, that is empty time. It hasn't happened yet. And so in secularism, one of the points we made is that we're shifting from focus on Allah Ta'ala to focus on the creation. We're shifting from focus on Allah Ta'ala to focus on the human being, which means we're paying more attention to what the human being is doing. And what that then means in terms of time it means that the future, we might imagine what may happen in the future, even one hour from now. But we think of it as empty. Okay. So how is that different from how historically people would look at time? That whether we're speaking within our ummah, in the early history of our ummah, and what we seem to find in Christianity as well, 
is that the qadr of Allah is built into how we imagine time. Meaning, we don't separate the qadr of Allah from time. So a way to understand it is that if I'm thinking of secular, I'm basically saying that Allah is irrelevant. And what is in the past is now in my imagination. What is in the present is up to me in terms of the actions that I do. And the future is empty. Now, I'm making this sound very, very philosophical, but I'm suggesting most everyone, this is how everyone thinks, Muslim or not. Uh, is this kind of getting into free will? So, so free will becomes a consequence of thinking about it. Okay. So one of the most, so I'll come back to that in a moment, inshallah. And so what I'm saying here is that what seems to be the case, I mean, obviously we can't travel in the past, what seems to be the case is that in the past, uh, and this is even in the period of Jahiliya, but especially in the period of the Prophet and the Sahaba and the early generations for a long time, you didn't separate the Qadr of Allah from time. Today we still keep the Qadr of Allah a little bit in the past, right? Because what do we say when something bad, when something good has happened in the past? We say Masha Allah. Although we may not realize what we're saying. What does MashaAllah mean? Anybody? If, if Allah wills. That's, that's inshallah. MashaAllah means Allah has willed it. Right? And so we only say this for, 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 for good things that happened. right? We don't say, you know, uh, everybody in my family died, MashaAllah. Right, we don't say we don't say this about bad things, and so we. I'm saying we have a little bit of concept of of the qadr of Allah even today. Just like what did we do? What is the meaning of 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 inshallah versus what is the practical meaning of inshallah? The real meaning of inshallah is just like Brother Moulton said, if Allah wills. What is the practical meaning of inshallah? Anybody? Like if I say, can you help me? If I say, okay, can you help me? And then and then Brother Balahad says, yeah, I can help you, inshallah. What does that mean? In the future, whatever it comes, I will be there. If Allah. Uh, okay, so I heard, uh, oh, Brother Paul, you're on, you're on you're Salman's name again. Let me fix you. Uh, if Allah's wills, right? No. Okay, that's <coughs> much... Yeah, go ahead, Khalid. Sorry. It means that I'll, I'll do my best, but uh, the, the end results are not in my hand. Okay. So, so that's what we all are supposed to mean. Okay. 90% of the time when some, when you say, can someone, can you help me? And someone says, yes, inshallah. What do they really mean? That, that we will not going to show up. That we're not going to show up. That's what it means. It means only Allah's will can force me to come. <laughs> right. And, and I say it partly in a joke, but I also say it partly in complete seriousness. And so what I'm saying is that we do still have in our vocabulary, mashallah, inshallah, it's still there in our vocabulary. Yeah. But what I'm saying is practically speaking, it's more in our imagination than in our reality. It's the, it's so the Biden, it's the, it's the Biden, inshallah, right? Well, how, the, you say the Biden from the debate? Yeah, yeah, how, yeah, how the debate, yeah. how he used yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, 
the, the sad part is everyone is everyone familiar with this moment that Biden is debating Trump, and Trump said he's going to do something like release his taxes, and Biden says when, inshallah. And then on the one hand, there's so many people are coming jumping saying, hey, he said inshallah, right? Which, but it was the most corrupted definition of inshallah possible. So anyway, so so do you understand the point that I'm making? That in in free in in pre secular time. The, the idea of Qadr of Allah was reality in people's minds, or it seemed to have been reality. So when they're saying mashallah, they're not saying congratulations. Okay. They're saying okay, Allah has willed this good thing. And so when we're saying inshallah, they're literally looking from the perspective of the Qadr of Allah. Whereas inshallah, even for believers, by and large, it usually means hopefully. And so, so when we're speaking of the whole idea of secularism, it doesn't mean belief is killed. It just means belief is on the side. The default is dunya. Okay. And its effect is in time. And so this idea of homogeneous time being part of secularism means that we're basically focusing only on actions. That the future is this empty space where I can do whatever I want with it. Okay, and so continuing along, so apart from the idea of a, of a direct access society, homogeneous time is a prerequisite for imagining the totality of individual lives that comprise the national community. Some of these points we've already talked about. Ah, so further, what's also part of the rise of secularism, of course, is we've been saying over and over again, is the rise of democracy. And so the previous style of government was some sort of kingship, monarchy, sultan, things like that. Right, going all the way from the Umayyads all the way into the modern period. Now, what is part of the idea of the democracy? Number one is that you are a contributor. As a citizen, you are a contributor. And then if you are not contributing, then you are not being a good citizen. Okay, so how are you contributing? Number one, you're contributing with your treasure. So those are taxes. Uh, number two, you're contributing with your body by sending your children to become soldiers. And then the third point. I have, a, I have a quick question. Uh, well, uh, let me just finish this point, then I'll come back to, to you and also Brother Mosin's point, if you will. And then what is the, the, the third point? Uh, okay, and then you're also participating in the process of governance. And so here's a simple question. Uh, ask yourself, do you know the name of the mayor of your town? Uh, do you know the name of the representative uh, in both Illinois as well, if you're in Illinois, as well as uh, in terms of, of the US Congress? And do you know the name of your senator and such? Everybody knows the president, but part of the idea of the secular governance is that you're participating at the local level, not just once every four or every four years, but it includes that. And so the point is that if you're not participating, then society falls apart. So society re relies upon people to participate. 
And the question I'll, I'll ask is, okay, this is also uh, uh, an Islamic uh, uh, issue too. But first, uh, Malahat, your question. So is there any, <clears throat> do we have any like um, agreed definition of traditionalist and modernist per se? Because, you know, uh, when you talk to the multiple people, they have a different ideas of those two definitions. Um, they can, and, and the sec, because, you know, when, when I was talking to Abu Rabi, while back when I was in Hartford Seminary, he mentioned that, you know, in order to understand the modernity, you have to understand the last 300 years of the Muslim history, or the history at least, and then you have to take like a whole semester to understand the, the, the question of modernity. So how we can able to understand the modernity by reading one book, and how we can able to have like in a simple, the people don't go to the academics, how we can have like a, a agreed upon definition, what is the tradition, what is the modern? So, so what I'm hearing is a smart question, but what I'm also hearing is, is the, uh, something that has no relationship with what we've been discussing for the past 45 minutes, and instead Malahat is already planning for what to do after Ramadan. That sounds, that's, uh, sounds like what, uh, what's going on here. So I'll let your other teachers answer that question for you, inshallah. Okay. Brother Mosin, back to your point about free will. And so, so one of the most common questions that I get today are about free will versus versus qadar. So qadar versus qadar, and and so here the difference is that the default that people are looking at is their actions, and predestination is in their imagination. Whereas what seems to be the case in the early definition, in the early generations, especially of Muslims, is that free will and predestinations were looked at as their reality. Uh, do, you, do, you, uh, do you see the difference? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. I thought someone else had, had a question. Uh, okay, so we'll, uh, we'll continue along. Okay, so another big point. Oh, no, I was going to ask the question. So what do you all think? This point about participation, is this also an Islamic point too? If it is, how is it or how is it not? Where we said that you are expected to participate, you're expected to contribute with your wealth, with blood, as well as in the governance. Is this also something that we find as an Islamic approach. What are your thoughts? So I think we saw that uh, evidence from the, the Sira, right? Muhammad asked about that and the donations and the people can bring, like Hazrat Abu Bakr bring everything from his home and Hazrat Usman give like 100 camels and 100 camels again. Totally. Okay, so, so there it was voluntary, um, but what about all the people who didn't? Meaning, did he make it a rule for people to, to contribute? In that example, it seems like no, he's only fundraising. No, I, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes he did in the, the book. He, he ordered uh, that it was almost compulsory to contribute mm -hmm. or to go with him in war if they had money. So it seems as though uh, for Mal, the only time it was an obligation is when. Zakat. If you had enough money. 
Well, even aside from that, uh, zakat is the only is only is the only obligation, and that was the contribution. And then there was additional sadaqah in different moments, like the example that that Malahat gave. But in terms of fighting, then it seems like the standards was much the the requirement was much wider. That uh, that people were expected to join, not for Badr, not for Ohad, but Tabuk is a good example. You know, where it seemed as though almost everybody was, was called in that you had to participate. And then we have the famous hadith of, of Kaab. What about uh, participation in the government? I think, is it expectation? Uh, yeah, I think uh, we can, I think there are some famous quotes of Hadith Omar when he uh, became Khalifa that if I deviate, then how will you, you know, what will you do with me? And so basically the response was that we will, uh, you know, we will even fight against you. So he said that, you know, I, I am happy that I am leading people who are, uh, who are thoughtful or they're civil. So basically, and even, uh, you know, Amar bin Maruf and Nahim Anil Munkar is yes, that's obligation. Right so that's all that's there. Yeah. And so, so in terms of calling to what is right, forbidding what is wrong, that is the obligation on everybody. And, and so whether it means you have a position in the government or not, that's a different issue. But that is the process of of participation, that is a responsibility on everyone. That if you're seeing something wrong, you have to call it out. And you have to call to, to, to what is good, even if you're the only person. So some of this does overlap, but what is the difference yeah. here? That it, isn't that uh, that Amar bin Maruf Banahinan Munkar will contradict what statement we are reading right now? Because that is like, you know, we have to participate and then uh, you have a, you have a like, discipline forces like you know the institutions who will actually responsible for law and order situation so if you do the law law and order situation by yourself in today's society you will be get more <laughs> severe punishment isn't that true i mean uh, of course but it doesn't mean that you that you have to stay quiet because the law and order people might be doing wrong themselves, right? Right, but I was I was referring to those three levels of, uh, you know, stopping. They stop with the hand, otherwise with the tongue, or at least feel bad on your heart. I was talking in that, that scenario. Okay, now I'm not understanding. I'll explain so, further a little uh, bit. So. so, you know, Amar bin Maruf, Fanehi al-Munkar, as you know, that, you know, uh, in the light of Hadith, that, you know, you can stop with your hand if you see an injustice. If you cannot able to do it, at least you can say say it. But so what you're saying is not nobody can stop us to saying what is right. So I'm saying that you know we are compromising at some level of religion to be on the the second level rather than on the first level. Are we compromising our religion? If he's saying that um, if you don't stop by hand, so if you're stopping by hand then you're actually fighting against the government in certain cases. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I comment on that? Please. Yeah, so you're, I, just, I don't see how you would stop at the third level. Just look at what's happening to the anti-Asians, you know, um, with the violence. 
people attacks, and there are all these bystanders who um, don't do anything. Michael Cook has an amazing book on commanding right, forbidding wrong, and he begins with the example of bystanders when crimes are being committed. So there are all kinds of opportunities to still engage in the third level if uh, you're witness to something that requires that level of um, response. So. And Malahat, is that answering your point or, yeah. or are we still misunderstanding? No, no, that, that's answering my point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so once that's a good example. And, and of course, and maybe this is part of what you're referring to is that um, there might be things in the system that require much more strategy for change to happen, but the obligation to still stand up is still there. But okay. So free society has a substitute. Oh, so, so the point I was making is that uh, we find a lot of these things, at least as ideals in, in our tradition, in our history. Uh, but why is this something that is now being established? A lot of what we're calling secularism, we said early on, is a response to monarchies and it's a response to, to, to religious violence or violence people are committing against each other through, through their uh, religious lens. Okay, and then moving uh, a step further. Ah, so, so what that then means is that if there's heavy focus on the individual, then there's a very heavy focus on individual self-discipline. So a point we emphasized last time is that, <clears throat> that Part of the outlook, the secular outlook, is elevation of the individual. And what that then means is that there's there's especially large focus on self-discipline of the individual. So part of it is what we spoke but nobody can force you. You have to be doing this voluntarily for the secular democratic government to, to, to work. And you, it's up to you to hear me. It looks like you're frozen. Hello. Frozen. Testing, testing. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. You can hear me now? Okay, okay, good. Okay, so the last part I was saying is that part of the idea of the secular government is self-discipline, and it cannot be forced upon you, and you have to consent. And so now we're getting into some of the details, the nitty-gritty of, of how secularism operates. And so what we're saying then is that if you're forcing people to participate, then the system is not going to work. If you are opening the floor for people to participate, then that's part of the idea of secularism. So let me ask you this question then. What do you think about this role of power where we leave it up to the masses? So let me take a step back. How was Abu Bakr uh, named Khalifa? It'd be a semi-easy question. Hazrat Umar appointed uh, said that he will do bayah on him. 
Okay. Well, I mean, before that, what's the whole picture? Muhammad gives some indications. That's never that's never part of the discussion. Yep. Can I say something? He leads yeah, the salah of while he was. So he leads the salah. Yeah, but uh, that doesn't seem to he be was. used in the deliberation. Uh, Khalid, go ahead. So he was literally elected. I mean, his name was proposed by Umar radiallahu uh, But uh, really, there was a debate. There was a conversation. You know, the 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 Ansar wanted to have the uh, you know the leadership or the Khalafa you know, with them because they perhaps feared, you know, what happened to them afterwards, you know, during the time of Umayyah because those people who are really accepted Islam after Fatah Makkah and stuff. So this was one of the reasons the, so they wanted to have that. But when Abu Umar radiallahu came and he, he uh, quoted that, you know, Rasulullah uh, had asked that the, the Khilafah should remain really, you know, in Christ and he, uh, there was another Ansar who witnessed, you know, this this hadith, and then it was really election. It was really he was elected, right? Because some people try to say that you know Rasulullah really you know uh, gave him the imama to uh, lead and this and that. Uh, I mean, just imagine that something of this caliber, right? That who's going to be the successor uh, cannot be just. Uh, given in the way of like hints and this and that, you know, how the people do it, say it, you know, it should be clearly stated out, you know, you know that, you know, this is how it's going to be. And, you know, nobody was really stopping Rasulullah to really disappoint one and nobody would really disagree. But why did he not really clearly just mention that? I mean, was he afraid of somebody? You know, this was not the case. So he wanted this matter to be left among the, the shura, you know, amruhum shura, bainahum. And, so this is how I, at least, you know, what I know that he was elected mm-hmm. as a, not nominated. So a couple of key points. Yeah, uh, we often today make reference to the fact that Abu Bakr was, was assigned to lead prayer. But when the actual deliberation was happening, nobody brought, the, it doesn't seem that anybody brought that up, right? Omar didn't bring that up. Abu Bakr didn't bring that up. None of the Ansaras brought it up. And so, so consistent with what, uh, what what Brother Khalid is mentioning is that um, there is a debate happening about who should be the Khalifa, and then Omar is saying that no one is going to follow someone who is not in uh, who is outside of Quraysh, and then and then the, the story gets hazy. Either they turn to Omar first, or he directs everybody to Abu Bakr, and then they all give their bayah to Abu Bakr. But who gives their bayah to Abu Bakr? Is it the entire Ummah? No, just the leadership. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. yeah Abraham, um, go ahead. I, no, at that time, it was the leadership they decided, but then I, if I remember right, that uh, Hazrat Abu Bakr came to the masjid and then he took a bayah uh, as a whole from the people in the masjid. So, so yes, the, the leaders are the elite of of the of the Ansars and the Mahajirs, those are the people who determine Abu Bakr should be the, the Khalifa. So the key point I'm making, number one, is that it's not the entire population of Muslims. And then number two, Abu Bakr does, you know, he does give his his uh, his opening address, but it's only the people of Medina who are giving their bayah to him. 
And then sometimes when people are coming in, they're also giving their bayat to him. But what is a key point that I'm emphasizing here that we often present it either as though the prophet hinted and or that the entire ummah elected him. And both of those are wrong. Of course, we could debate about whether or not the sources themselves are authentic, but that's a whole separate conversation. Okay, second question. How was Omar selected? Anyway. That one is a little easier. It was appointed by Hazrat Abu Bakr. Yeah, yeah, that one's really easy. So, <laughs> so, so Abu Bakr is, uh, is said to have appointed him. And, and then the people accepted it while Abu Bakr is still alive. Okay, how is Uthman selected? I think that was the that was a shura, right? By uh, ten uh, of the elites. So uh, appointed by whom? Um, was it? I think uh, Hazrat Umar had uh, mentioned that you should uh, do it by by shura council, mm -hmm. and he may have uh, indicated who should be on that uh, shura. So so Omar appoints the 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 council with the assumption that one of those people in the council should be the Khalifa. Good. Right, right. Now, let's make it even more interesting. How was Ali? Yeah, so he was the dead tie between Hazrat Usman and Hazrat Ali. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, so uh, Osman, so then they pick Osman. But I'm saying after Osman, how is Ali picked? Anybody know this one? This is the first yeah, one. No, we got there to So nobody knows how Adi was, was, was named the Khalifa. He's number four. One of the, I'm sorry. I'm hearing cross talks. Yeah, I, I muted some other people. But um, uh, so, so what's happening in the case of Ali? We have the people who have taken over Medina and killed Uthman. And they are realizing that as soon as news gets out, they're not letting anybody in or out of Medina. As soon as news gets out, they're all dead. That because they killed the Khalifa. So they go to Ali and they demanded that he becomes the Khalifa and he refuses. They go to Zubair, he refuses. And they go down this list of, of sort of the elite of the Sahaba who are still remaining and everybody's refusing. And then they go to Ali again. If you don't become the Khalifa, we're going to kill all these other people. Anybody remember this story? Seems like this story has become part of our no. amnesia. Yeah, never heard of it. Who people? Like which people? All the Sahaba, you mean? So, 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 how did uh, what uh, what happened with Uthman at the end of his life? The Khawarij came and. Yeah, they weren't they weren't Khawarij, but the people who who came in, uh, these young people who come in and try to take over Medina, and then they lay siege on his house. They keep him, so to speak, under house arrest for a while, and then they break in, and then and then they kill him, and they lock down Medina, and news reached in. So the wife of Osman somehow she escapes. That's also a big question mark. How, and then. And then Aisha, she news reaches her and she says, Okay, I need to go on Umrah. You can't stop me. So they let her go on Umrah. And she goes on Umrah with Hafsa, Umahatul Mu'minin, 
and they arrive at 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 the haram and then aisha announces that trash has taken over medina and we have to do something about it nobody remembers any of this story y'all want to learn about modernity shaternity but you don't even know this story uh, i i have heard that it's just uh, very complicated yeah it's it is very complicated and and so 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 then these people these young people find out that uh you know, or they realize, okay, we've killed the Khalifa. As soon as news gets out that we've killed the Khalifa, we're all doomed. Yeah, I heard that story, but I'm I'm afraid to say anything because you're coming after me today. So <laughs> you can use me as your excuse. In any case, so so yeah, so this is how Ali finally accepts to become the Khalifa. And so 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 that is a fourth method of, of, of picking the leader. And so then Ali has to go through the whole process, Ali radiallahu anhu has to go through the whole process of trying to consolidate things while having restricted power and such. And then as we know, there's the battle of the camel, there's a the battle of Safin, so far and so on. Yeah. Uh, so, so Musab is saying, I know Hazrat Aisha was upset with Hazrat Ali. Not, it's not so much that she was upset. One problem is that there's no Wi-Fi at that time, right? So there's no there's no texting, and and so they have to get information whatever way they can. Are you coming? And so from her perspective, okay, we need to avenge the the murder of Uthman, and from Ali's perspective, we need to prevent the entire Ummah from falling apart. But the bigger problem is that they're not standing in front of each other having a discussion; they're they're far away physically, sending messages, you know, back and forth. And so each person has to make decisions very fast based on whatever news that they have. And, and so that's essentially what is taking place. Okay, now what is the point of, the, of, of, of this, uh, of the whole uh, exercise? Is that we have these multiple different methods for, for picking the leader. Now let's make it even more interesting. Okay. Are there examples where Abu Bakr does not follow the Sunnah of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Yes. What would be an example? The, the Quran the Quran. Yeah, absolutely. So Abu Bakr at first is is doing exactly what the Prophet, peace be upon him, did, including putting Zayd in charge in such in, in such and such expeditions. And then <clears throat> there are some cases where because of practical necessity. He is shifting from whatever the prophet did or did not do. What about under Omar? Yeah, I mean the, the uh, even yeah. even with the Abu Bakr of the Allah, not only this, I mean the prophet did not appoint anybody by name. Mm -hmm. So he, yeah, I mean that's that's yeah. really you know a diversion from that. So he really uh, appointed uh, or selected really Umar of the Allah, and then really others really took the bayah, uh, and also in many other matters, right? The uh, the one you just mentioned, and the same thing goes with the Hazrat Umar For example, you know the there was no concept of standing armies, right? What uh, we call today mercenaries, right? I mean the mercenary is such a bad word these days, but really uh, the, the the just like the Romans, I mean the the Umar really started that you know these soldiers they should be really paid. It's no longer you know, just voluntary basis that, you know, hey, you know, we're going for a fight, everybody just gathers up, right? Mm -hmm. And similarly, I mean, so many other things, changes that they brought, uh, 
you know the, the police system and the adalia you know the justice system and um, the uh, they made it like a social uh, welfare state you know the concept of uh, um, taxes and the collection and the the biggest thing was then you know that the the homes that used to go to the state you know on the wars when you had you know everybody um, you know uh, when you conquer a war right a battle then really you know everybody you know all those inhabitants becomes your slave you know you actually own that so umar stopped that right and they really had to gather you know all those badriyun and they really you know pass this universal uh, uh, fatwa that you know the the only you know things which will be really in the battlefield will be really uh, divided you know among the warriors not really the the people and the property you know otherwise you know there would have been so many wrath's child you know in, in the muslim world you know if you will continue to do that well, we don't need the wrath's child reference but the point is that yes that uh, that omar made many many different changes and then at the same point is that osman also many made different changes compared to what the prophet peace be upon him did and including changes from what he did not do so where the question for all of you where is abu bakr omar uh, osman ali all these places where they're they're going different than the prophet what pro- the prophet did peace be upon him where are they getting these ideas from for example where is omar getting the idea to have a census of everyone the on and and so forth and so on is it coming from omar's brilliance or where you broke up i think in the middle uh, can you repeat that can you hear me now can you hear me now yeah okay so the question i was raising is is where are these khalifas getting these other ideas from so all these changes for example some of the changes that khalid mentioned where are they getting the ideas from is it from their own brilliance is it from dua where are they getting it from yeah the, the, these things we never encountered earlier so now these are the real so issue to be, to be tackled with so either through you know mutual discussion or or having a having a cabinet or something to to discuss this and come up with some solution so they have some of that yes can uh, i can i yeah go for it okay so the one thing is that really uh, the uh, the basic teachings of islam right uh, by default really everything is halal un- unless you really prove haram so we have adopted the reverse methodology right everything is haram and then you have to prove halal so if there is nothing wrong if there is no moral or other issues that really directly uh, are opposite to the to the core fundamental uh, islamic teachings which is really the quran and established sunnah then really there is there is no harm adopting new things right so where are a lot of these things coming from they're looking at what the romans are doing they're looking at what the persians are doing and and then they're sifting through amar is sifting through to see what is a benefit for us and he gets mm-hmm. that principle that becomes a principle later on it's not yet a principle that okay everything is mubah you know except if if the quran and sunnah tell you that it's not but the idea here <laughs> is is that they're looking at what are these other governments doing 
how does uh, you know how do the romans operate how do the persians operate how do the egyptians operate and then testing what is of use for us so that they're also not embracing everything wholeheartedly without uh, analyzing but the point i'm making is that we often even imagine the four khalifas to be acting through wahi right through the wahi that the prophet peace be upon him received and what i'm suggesting is even if you look at how they became leaders yeah, it's hard to find any hint from the prophet for, for any of the, the four selections. And then on top of that, when they're leaders, most of the decisions that they're making, not most, but many of the decisions they're making, either they're importing ideas from, from other populations, you know, or they're just addressing the pragmatic practical issues on the ground that we often imagine that it's coming from, uh, from, from what he, uh, Brother Hashim, you're about to say something. Oh, um, I'm, I'm saying, can, can we call that that they did ishtahad? So we could call it ishtahad. This would be a term that gets used later. Yeah. And so this goes back to the point that I made last week, that what is Sunni Islam? Sunni Islam is the prophet and the sahaba. Right. And a big part of what the major sahaba did is we could call it shura, because it includes shura. We could call it ishtahad. Uh, but a key point that I'm emphasizing is that they're also taking these ideas from these other empires and then they're looking at what is relevant for us, but it's almost purely, seems purely dunyawi. Their intention is what is best in terms of facing Allah Ta'ala. In terms of operation, any good idea they have, any good idea they find that's relevant, they're taking it. And so bringing us back to the, the, the question of, <clears throat> of self-discipline, another way to think about the history of, of Islam, and this is a modifying you know, uh, narration from Hadith, is that imagine the whole history of Islam is this big blanket, and through the generations, one thread is being removed, another thread is being removed, another thread is being removed. <clears throat> And so part of the rise of Islamic law has been related to the difference from the government. So here we're saying in secularism, the idea is that everyone's a participant. And part of the rise of Islamic law is to say, okay, here's how to be a Muslim, regardless of whether the government is Islamic or not. And that is focused on self-discipline, voluntary participation. Now, let me uh, explain what that means. So today in America, if someone does not want to pay zakat, uh, what can you and I do? So let's say, you know, let's say somebody in this class, let's say Basir announces I'm not paying zakat anymore. What can any of us do? Uh, nothing we can do on this. Okay. Yeah, we can't do anything. hundred years ago, what can you do? Maybe the government might have the power to punish somebody, right? What seems to be the case of two things that seem to be consistent in terms of what you can impose on a population, a Muslim population, is to force all the men to pray in the masjid uh, at all five prayers and then to pay zakat. But, but, you know, everything else is subject to your own laws, whether the person not the same as whether my intention, oh, 
Can you all hear me? Am I frozen again? Yeah, you were breaking up. Can you hear me again? You're okay now. Yeah, yeah fine now. Please repeat the last. Okay, so so the, the last portion I was making is that when we look at the, the history of what scholars seem to be saying that the Muslim government can force on the people, the two things that seem to me the most is uh, uh, force men to make their prayers and then uh, everything else, some disagree, right? Women have to wear a hijab. It's a modern phenomenon where it actually seems to be imposed. Um, but the point I'm making here is that my adherence to Sharia is ultimately voluntary if I'm not in a Muslim or, so to speak, Islamic government. Agreed? Am I still breaking up? Yeah. No, so, you're fine. You were, but you're okay now. Okay. So let me try again. Yeah, here. In fact, let me type it. Uh, I'm saying. So recording will be also be broken? Uh, I sure hope not, but it probably will be. My appearance to Sharia is voluntary. Yes? I just yes. typed it in the chat box. Okay. And, and so the point that I'm making, I don't know if, if you're hearing it the other time, the only things that, that, that scholars seem to agree upon that the Muslim government can force on, on the believers, the only religious things that they can be forced on the Muslims is salah on the men and zakat on everyone who's eligible. Jizya on, on, on non... Uh, I don't people to look and such. Okay. Matter of fact, isn't it uh, even Quran says that uh, that is that talking to Rasulullah some that you should you collect zakat? So that means is the state responsibility to collect it. Is mm -hmm. that the main yeah, the one of the main? Was, yeah, the word is cause literally take it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And that could be where the reasoning is coming from, but that seems to be the only thing where they all agree. You know, meaning they don't agree on whether or not hijab should be publicly mandatory. They don't agree on all these other things. And they don't seem to agree on what is the punishment for doing this or that. Uh, Omar. Yeah. I have uh, really just a question, maybe in this gathering or this, this or some other time, but the jizya uh, is the, I mean, the, I, I would say that the two things are really zakah and the, uh, uh, the, the salah, right? The, the jizya as it is understood, right? The, it's not only really attacks, but it has the, uh, the humiliation, Sahirun. So I would argue that that was really till the, uh, the time of Rasulullah and the, um, the, the Khilafat de Rashda or you know, the, uh, those people who were the direct or indirect uh, recipient of the Rasulullah's call, you know, who he wrote letters. And that thing did not really or uh, shouldn't have been really extended uh, further than that. But I mean, that can be a different discussion, but I just wanted to register or at least record this point so we can you know, yeah. talk about that later on. So yeah, I'll put that on the same list as, as Malahat's question. That, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's not irrelevant, but maybe we'll get to it at some point, inshallah. Yeah. For a different class in the future. Okay, so, so 
So the basic point, what is the, the question that I'm raising? Is that fundamentally in our era, adherence to Islam is purely voluntary. It's an act of self-discipline, right? Anybody uh, want to modify that at all? Or do y'all take that as exactly as how I'm saying it? So, you're living in Chicago, you're living in, I'm sorry? In American context, but in an Islamic state concept, for example, in, in Pakistan or somewhere, that would okay. be different, right? Okay. What in, if I'm living in Pakistan, uh, what is being forced upon me by the government if I'm identified as Muslim? I think it's the, uh, the state will do Amar Be Maruf and Nahiyan in Munkar. Okay. And then, and so, but will the state, will the Pakistani state impose anything upon me? If I skip all my prayers, what is the Pakistani state going to do? Nothing. If I skip the yeah. what is the Pakistani state going to do? Yeah, I don't think that they can enforce it. Yeah. That's my, my, my thought or understanding, I, I guess. All, all of you know Pakistani life better than I do. Okay. Uh, in terms of Saudi Arabia, if I skip my prayers, what are they going to do? No, nothing. But there used to be a police who were used men. to be. Used to be. Yeah. But that was only in the public sphere, though. Mm -hmm. But meaning part of the assignment of, of the, the morality police is that they would also pay attention to, they'd be assigned to your neighborhood. And say, hey, you haven't been coming for miles. But that even seems to have been cut down quite a bit. Uh, zakat, however, seems uh, that that is automatically taken from, from your bank accounts. But even then, um, let's see. Papa says that money, that they just cut the money from the bank account in the name of Zakat in Pakistan. Oh, so that happens automatically there too. Okay, yeah, good. All right, so the money matters are always taken care of. So what I'm suggesting for consideration is see if how many exceptions you can find to my simple point that adherence to Islam anywhere in the world in 2021 is purely voluntary. If I'm breaking the other secular laws of the state, then obviously I'm subject to that. And then the following point, okay, so Brother Mosin is saying publicly eating during Ramadan can still have consequences in Saudi Arabia. I don't think it has consequences in Pakistan, does it? You know, nope, except people not. might be upset. No, other people will get you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally, right? I mean, I work with Catholics who are always working throughout the world, and they always tell me about how angry all the Muslims get when they're eating during Ramadan and such, but... Um, but I, but is but there not really a sharan? Yeah, there is nothing yeah. required. So, in the so, so uh, I think Musab is. Okay, let me come back to your points. So first, uh, Musab is saying that Pop says that voluntarily that that it looks like the whole religion has become voluntary. Yeah, um, and then Brother Hashem and then Brother Khalid. Oh, sorry, um, you were picking. Uh, I was saying that. Uh, there's no, uh, in the Sharia, it does not uh, force it that people should not eat outside, right? I mean, this is just a culture thing, mm -hmm. right? Yes, 100% culture. Yeah. Yeah. And people should not be upset if you're eating. 
and all these priests tell me stories of, of like Morocco and then they start eating food and all these people give them you know really mean comments and such but um, you know that's a whole separate issue but uh, uh, Brother Khaled you were saying something else as well yeah, I mean, the, exactly what uh, Brother Hashim said, that, you know, there is no, that's not Islamic to enforce these things. Similarly to the women can't go out without wearing hijab and those sort of things. I mean, those have, those things have really nothing to do with, with Islam, in my opinion. Actually, though, they may be considered bid'ah in, in that sense because, you know, comes under right? That don't really be extremist in these things, right? Because those, that's not really what Islam is about. Am I breaking up again? Sometimes. Yeah, you are breaking. <laughs> okay, let me see if I can leave the class and come back. And and then... You're okay. You're fine. Yeah. I'm okay now? Yeah, yeah. Please do come back. Don't run away from our questions. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, even even the, <laughs> even the questions when I'm telling you all that you're... Uh, that uh, it, it doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, but you all can hear me now, yes? Yeah, you're fine. Okay, okay. So in any case, so the question that I'm leading to is that if, if Islamic practice is voluntary, how is a secular government different than a Muslim government? They said because... all the stuff we've covered so far. The focus is dunya versus hereafter. Okay. But this goes back to my point with the four Khalifas. It's fair to assume, all of us assume 100% that their focus was the hereafter. But the operation of the government, you know, was using dunya elements. Because so much of the government is not found in the Quran and the Sunnah. So yeah, so we can say that the so, focus... Yeah, go ahead, Brother Malahat. I think the operational excellence and operation should be aligned with the compatibility of the existing challenges in the society, yeah. mm -hmm. rather than rather than we can just hold on to the operational part. But the religion can be the core, as you pictured last time. You know, the bottom is a religion, mm -hmm. and then relationship. So in relationship, actually, all the operational things comes the social aspect. So, so if my Islam is found in how I conduct myself with people, which is the exact chart that, that I made that, that Brother Malahat's referring to, most of those matters are not related to the government. And so, so essentially what I'm suggesting for, and I'm not saying this is a conclusion, I'm suggesting this to, to think about, is can you have a secular government that is wholly Islamic? And if that is the case, how? Uh, Brother Khaled, you're raising your hand. Yes, so this is uh, going back to the same question or comment that I made in our uh, last Saturday, that Islam, as most people think, is a core of life, really it's more like an angle of life. Okay. Uh, you have certain high-level principles and teachings that you really you, you need to make sure that you comply. And my thing was the same thing, that you know the, uh, the secularism or whatever it is, it can be really Islamized. <clears throat> Keep going. So how? 
So, like, what would be an example of the secularism being Islamized? Okay, so you take uh, what is really uh, is in line with the core teachings, mm-hmm. right, of Islam, and you leave what is really uh, contradict, right? Yeah. The criterion you use is the the Quran first and foremost, mm-hmm. and then really the, the the established Sunnah and the you know the, the again the authentic practices of the uh, uh, Salaf Salihin, you know, coming okay. from the early generation. So in theory, every single person in this class would agree with that. But I'm suggesting in practice, what we saw with the four Khalifas is so much of their operational society was what we would perhaps here call secular. And so that's the question that I'm raising. Uh, think about this more, uh, Brother Monson. Yeah, so, I, so I think like if I, t- if I think of the example of Pakistan, and I think this happens in other places too, um, is that uh, every law that, let's say, the, the assembly passes has to still be uh, vetted by or approved by uh, the, 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 the Council of Ulamas, right? They still have to have some sort of final seal of approval that this is not un-Islamic. Uh, it may not always be the case. It may not play out fully that way. Uh, but there is still that concept that yes, the the the, the assembly will not pass anything, any law that's uh, against mm-hmm. uh, the, the tenets of Islam. And okay. I think this is in other countries as well. So again, as a theoretical statement, I think that's fabulous. Right. Exactly. And I'm saying, yeah. practically speaking, uh, I think we'll find that 90% of the laws are not contradicting the Quran and Sunnah. Uh, all the laws of American society and see how many we'd, we'd suggest, except for the yeah. ones that are in the news. You know. Right, right. But, but, but the, even the law, but there's no, um, I would say, obviously there's no effort to make sure that they comply with the Quran and Sunnah, right? Versus, and, 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 and Islamic... They would still go through that process. Yeah, they would still go through the vetting process. Right. And, right. But I'm still suggesting, practically speaking, uh, I'm raising the question, you know, beyond that additional step, which okay. is akin to, to what Brother, brother uh, Khalid is raising, I think in practice it changes almost nothing. Uh, so, Malahat, yeah. We have come to the same conclusion Dr. Sarah was mentioned years ago. He said the American society and or the secular society is more compatible with the Islamic Khilafah. That's the based on the definition we have all the these different points of of that we have in this book so far, right? Can it I seems, I, I, yeah, I go ahead. So I think um, yeah, most most of the things would be the same, but only the uh, the uh, in policy level or in communication level, you will have um, uh, more message. Like for example, using Juma or other other events to to send message to the population to to focus on the goal of doing what is right or you know, looking, have an outlook for Akira also, which okay. the secular governments, they, they don't really actively um, may give you nowadays. So I think that would be the only thing that is in okay. addition to the policy level. Okay, so in terms of messaging, there might be more messaging about Akira. Okay. I mean, among this is the the. Omri, you're cutting off. Yeah. 
can you all hear me now? okay here I'll, I'm... you're breaking up or maybe it's me no no we are not breaking up we are hearing the a or u u of the vowels so so brother malah uh, i think he he left right yeah he's coming back inshallah so so what i was asking is uh, brother william and also now i'm saying brother kazi i mean it look like you changed something in the link not a lot of people are able to directly go to you know this meeting so so i don't know i i i i have to log in through my zoom account and then only i'm able to to dial in so what change and, and brother william was also requesting to go back to the original setting which we had it for the first two classes it's the same it's the same link just of my knowledge i actually have in my calendar and i log in with the same link yeah but it, i mean again dr kazi is not able to and brother william says i he cannot with the same thing and dr kazi was a different class uh, that's why he was he was not here actually he was in a different class we both are okay brother william to and i was also not able to unless i account, i dial into my other account he's asking me that okay dial into zoom account only then he was able to log in anyway just a comment it's the last class anyway second last maybe but yeah i have no idea i mean this the link is coming from omar and anybody else have a same problem i think we have a i didn't click on the link i just used the last uh, zoom meeting yeah, uh, number that's what i did that's what i did i used the last zoom link why does brother ikbal have uh, somebody else salman picture yeah i have no idea Maybe yeah so i i use the, uh, for the meeting i used that account which is the eastern iona account and that's the way i was able to log in first two meeting i had no issue but i have to log in through this way and since is assigned to him to brother salman so that's why you see always brother salman slash brother ikbal picture over there there is no slash brother ikbal just <laughs> he, he makes malad malad initially made it slash ikbal so you see picture is salman and slash is ikbal right now we just saw a salman name that's pretty much that's all right i mean we know zero see picture is salman slash ikbal that's what i mean all right i think we need to just quiet because otherwise omar have to spend a lot of time to cut his recording last time he, we ran into so much issues so i'm putting myself on mute So mute is automatically slashed. You mean? All right. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I don't know if there's any discussion. Just, just, a, just a caution. We have some discussion. You probably end up cutting some recordings. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> no, 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 no. Some comments about the Zoom link. So. Oh, okay. 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 Sorry. Okay. So, so the fundamental question that I'm raising is if we were to imagine our utopian Islamic government, we often imagine something where everything is super religious. But what I'm suggesting is that if we think of it in terms of just its operations, it's hard to distinguish between what is what is uh, secular versus what is an Islamic government. Very hard to distinguish, purely from the perspective of operations. 
uh, Botzer made the point that the messaging will be different. Yeah, that will probably be different. And another big difference is if the establishment of the government is from top down, then it's probably just going to be a secular government. If it's coming from the grassroots up, then it'll only grow based on the efforts and in the iman of the people. So then what it means is that the people themselves will probably be much more religious and the operations are at the service of the people. And this overall is the answer to your question, Malahat, about modernity versus secularism. That the question you raised earlier was what is the, you know, <clears throat> how do we figure out what is modernity versus, you know, pre-modern and all that stuff. And I'm saying, if you look at the operations of the government, if you look at the operations of the society, then it's an ongoing search for what seems to be more effective, either for distribution of power or, or expansion of wealth and such. If we throw in terms like modernity and secular and stuff, then it's more what is in the imaginations of the people. And in the imaginations of the people, uh, when we think of secular, then we're saying Dean is on the side. So what, can, can you say or something? Actually, let, me, let me go to, to Malaha, does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. I think we need, we need to discuss a little bit more, but I'll wait for the next class then. Uh, Brother Khaled, you got a point. Yeah, so the I I'm just thinking or saying in uh, on behalf of the the traditional Islamic view on this, yeah. right? That we were brought up, uh, you know, even with the you know back sub lectures of you know Khilafah and all those things. So, for example, the the status of uh, other religion, all right, in the under the Islamic let's say, even operational government, right? The, um, so there, they can't, for example, you know, they can't, they can't build more uh, of their, uh, if they're Christians, they can make more churches. If they're Templars, they can make more uh, other things. Um, and uh, again, the enforcement of jizya and all those things, uh, I think that's one thing that really, uh, they can preach openly, you know, they can, preach in their churches, in their mandars or whatever, they can't really do things openly. So those sort of things, even though that personally, I think that really that's not part of Islam. People have the freedom of speech. They can say whatever they want to say. And you really, you say whatever you want to say. But this is not how we brought up, you know, in, in traditional Islamic um, brought up, or at least whatever we thought or we think that Islam is, that uh, and what we learned from, you know, when we go back to the time of Umar of the Allah Anhu and later on, you know, the, uh, you know, how they, how the, the, the non-Muslim minorities were really treated. They, you know, they're kuffar, you know, they're najas, you know, they should be humiliated, you know, sagarun, you know, we just assume that, you know, they, they know the truth of Islam and they're deliberately really denying the Prophet and, you know, all those sort of things. So the, I think it is, this one thing makes a big difference. If it's an Islamic government and if it's really established on these these older principles, then you know the uh, the non-Muslims they find really no room, no space. Really, I mean, why why they want to live it there? Okay, so uh, I would I would say that you know from our vantage point, I mean that would be uh, uh, that would be another question about the operations and what is the difference between then and now that back then your identity 
your citizenship was based on your religion. Today, your citizenship is based on your country's affiliation. And so the equivalent we have today is that in America, if you don't have American citizenship, then you also have diminished rights. So imagine being undocumented in America today. You know, that would be the equivalent uh, right now. And then, and then likewise, imagine a green card holder versus a, uh, someone with a full citizenship. So, so I, I would argue that the, I mean, that's fine because they, uh, they don't claim to be, uh, you know, religious, even though they have some, some real, I mean, everybody's religious in some sense, they follow something, right? They, 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 they uh, think, you know, it's sacred and whatnot, but in, uh, in, 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 in traditional Islamic point of view, I mean, there's, it's, it's a zero tolerance, right? For example, that, yeah, keep going. yeah. Uh, so in here, for example, the uh, the religious, the non-Muslim minorities, they can't hold, for example, some key government positions, mm-hmm. right? So what you are essentially saying is that the identity back in the day was really, you know, based on the religion, but now the identity is being really based on the the nation and state. Mm-hmm. So uh, those things doesn't matter. So in today's state, uh, in American secularism, it doesn't matter what your religion is, correct? Yeah. yeah. So, but if we go on the traditional Islamic point of view, then really can you remember the uh, roundtable conversation? You know, when some of the professors from here they yeah, traveled sure. to Pakistan, Lahore, yeah. And what Dr. said about Jews that they will be inhaled and this and that, and really, you know, some of those Jews they really stood up and they left the the conference, right? So, so these are the things maybe we need to really, you know, uh, work it out because the, the this is the, the fear and other things that the people have in mind that when they think of Islamic State, you know, they, they go back and start looking into, you know, this humiliation and this and that. Um, I mean, the so, and again, I don't know if this is a question for this or another class, but really can a non-Muslim become a president really in, in an Islamic country due to due process of democracy or can it get some key positions? Okay, so so that part, uh, uh, I, w- I would say it's fine as a discussion, but uh, for me, the question at this point um, seems to be very, you know, I don't see the relevance in terms of figuring out an answer to that question. Unless we can figure out some principles for why it would be relevant. So one correction that uh, those, those professors, the Jews professor, including Abu Rabi, yeah. this did not leave the table. They were in the room, but they raised their concern. They said, what are you talking about? You know, you know, the whole history. So that was. Yeah, the- that's, that's an important correction. I mean, um, I mean, the, the, the pushback was that they were saying, so you're basically saying people of other religions are second class citizens. And in Dr. Sarr's style of speaking is very blunt. And so he said, yes. And so then the pushback they gave is that that's opening the door for, for, for persecution and such. And, and yeah, that's, a, that's an important correction. But back to the question that I'm raising. Uh, uh, oh, by the way, uh, it's way over class time, but uh, I was telling Malahat, but I didn't advertise this to everyone. I'm happy to go until 12.30 uh, for whoever wants to stick around, whoever has to go, you can go. But, um, but the... Back to the, the key point that I'm emphasizing for, for today's discussion, secondarily, was the notion of how time has changed. But this whole idea of voluntary adherence, 
but i have to excuse myself i will later get back to the recording okay sure i was saying so like it's really uh, very interesting you know some of the points that you brought and made dots connections mm-hmm. are really very um, thought provoking sure. you know the but we think islam is and but we think secularism is. this is really very interesting um, i'm looking forward to have more of these classes but inshallah i'll get back to the recording you, you, thank you, you very much you're together inshallah okay, okay. assalamu alaikum so so emphasizing this point that second that the, the modern secular democracy relies upon voluntary participation that is exactly the case uh it seems to be of of the of the islamic polity that relies to some degree on voluntary participation we gave two exceptions one exception is is the is is salab al jamaa for 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 the men and then zakah for for everyone who's eligible everything else seems like it's a debatable uh or debated uh point everything else seems like it is but uh any other thoughts reflections questions even in secular in this modern secular state you know taxes and you know in america draft if there is and you you qualify for it it's mandatory so it's almost yeah. so so there are some things for the logistics of the state for the operations of the state that are that are required that uh and so in this hypothetical you know muslim polity may not be coming anywhere from deen and and so let's say they need they need to increase taxes on something uh let's say agriculture or something uh, uh, the the deen the quran and sunnah covers a lot of material on individual behavior a lot of material on uh, your obligations you know to neighbors and such but the further you get from the individual then the less and less it covers which then we can perhaps interpret the means that because of the nature of the world society you're going to be looking at worldly practical issues and answers yeah and even i mean uh, the example of sahaba that we have it looks like more of um a little uh, democratic socials socialist uh, yeah could be have- I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not probably conveying the point right, but basically, you have to take care of the people, right? Yeah, you have so, a, you have a, a, a oh. you have what seems to be like a welfare state. Yes. Yeah. Maybe so provided for people. Even, even that, you know, when Muslims come to power and have no resources, they might, you know, get together and say that, you know, we can't do that. So some of the Muslim may end up being like libertarians, where they say, you know, no, only people need protection of uh of life and health and that's it uh, and other people would say you know don't interfere too much in people's business you know don't regulate so more you know, new liberal so uh-huh. uh, i guess those ideas are going to probably haunt us too that's exactly what would happen meaning uh there are so many cases where you can argue two different points using our primary sources you can argue two opposing points that we would like to think all right if you implement quran and sunnah everything is figured out but that was not even the case for abu bakr 
definitely not the case for Omar. That was definitely not the case for Uthman and, and Ali and such. That uh, they literally had to figure these things out, you know, in real time along the way. And they, it, we could say that they had Quran and Sunnah in their hearts. And, and so what I would actually suggest is that the fundamental difference, and this is a later discussion, this will be next week, inshallah, the fundamental difference between the secular and the deen is not in the structure, it's in what is in the hearts of the people leading to the formation of the structure. And so you can you know, get United Nations approval or whatever and then impose your own state and you'll get backing if you if you also have a bank, but let's say, no, we don't want to be part of your banking system. Then if you're imposing it from the top down, then it's just going to be a secular government. Okay. If, however, you're growing the dean of the people from the ground up, then you're going to be addressing practical issues as they come up. You know, uh, there is, I have thought about this. So there is a little bit of a problem. So when you go from ground up, there needs to be an opening, you know, from the, you know, to, to go to up, right? So for example, like in Pakistan, you can have this level of awareness where people do understand Islam and its policies, what it wants to achieve. But if they're never going to go into the government, if those people are never going, I mean, either the establishment or people are never going to give them a chance then, or in certain societies where you're never you're never going to be allowed to go there because of sure. tyranny or mm-hmm. monarchy, then there is a problem. But you're right. It has to go from the bottom. Yeah, I mean, this, the, your point you're making is one of the, the differences between Hizbut Tahrir's point of Nusra versus Dr. Esra's revolution point that in the Hizbut Tahrir model, I don't know if it's still the case, uh, it is that, okay, at some point, you know, someone is going to give you the, the support, uh, whether we speak of the Ansar, or whether we speak of, of Najashi, but uh, the Dr. Sparrow model, it's great revolution, you know, but that's, you know, at this point, both of those uh, differences are irrelevant. Okay, any other questions, thoughts, reflections? And no, 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 I'm not being mean to you. Um, if uh-huh. nobody has, I, I'll ask one more. So, uh, but don't you think that Islamic government would use maybe the media more? I mean, now that we have one uh, to have more influence directly um, through maybe even social media, um, you can utilize different things within the framework that would be more direct. I mean, to also guide people um, towards what they want them to achieve. Uh, you know, being so, better citizens in this world and hereafter. I mean, possibly. So democracy by its nature relies on mass media, right? That you have to have mass media to be able to, to spread your message. The, the question would be, um, who is going to control the media? So you can have a country like Saudi Arabia where it controls the major media. And then every country controls internet access and so they can turn off YouTube or turn it on whatever they want to or turn off certain types of, 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 of material. And then the theoretical, or in, the, in terms of the American model, what is the corporations that run the media, you know, or whoever has power, 
runs the media and whoever has the most, most wealth, that's the corporations, which means very different messaging is going to be coming through. And so again, in theory, yes, it'll be much more. And the way the messaging might just happen is what we find in some Muslim countries where the government controls the masjid. And then the government controls the Jummah Khutbah. Or we can have the model in Pakistan where you open up your own Jum you open up your own masjid and you have your own Jummah. All those things uh, I think would be up in the air. But in theory, I would I would suspect yes in the Islamic model. But I mean, look at uh, what uh, Erdogan is producing. Most of that I would just call straight up propaganda. Erdogan, the favorite show of the entire Muslim Ummah, I think is just straight up propaganda for the Turkish government. Um, yeah, and also maybe, you know, even education is a very uh, formal way of doing this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even American democracy relies on, you know, uh, changing your mind through education. So, uh, so I guess that is uh, probably the same, but you, the government would be much more active on through the religious side uh, as secularism is through their own title. Yeah. Of uh, Brother Malhaj, you were saying something? No, no, I'm not. Okay, thank you. Any other thoughts, reflections about any of this? Next week will be our last session or so on. Else? Yeah, not yeah, not related, but uh, one one comment I have is that you know um, uh, because a lot of things has been changed from the last 50, 60 years. Uh, a lot of books which were lost or did not printed or did not available for the scholars and ulama is now available. A lot of work happened in Lebanon and Egypt and even in America, print media wise, right? Um, so in today's scholars, the challenges would be if they're not able to connect or have those new reading material available and read through it, it's very hard for them to be connected back to the, to the Quran and Sunnah, as you mentioned earlier, because there is a, like I, I use the example that uh, the time of Imam Abu Hanifa, uh, the accessibility of a hadith is not available most of the time, right? It's not that availability is very limited, but that's, that's kind of raised an issue and then Imam Yusuf saw that need and he actually able to like expand his need for to be more like uh, hadith sciences and everything else. So how, how we can adopt the similar methodology, the challenges of scholars nowadays, right? Uh, because uh, the reason, the background for that is that there's a lot of back, back, you know, backbiting and then finger pointing on, oh, Yasir Qad is changing his methodology and this and that. And, but, but I think for, I think we should give the benefit of doubt because I think they're growing. The growth is coming. Mm -hmm. what, what, you, what is your Okay, take? so just one small correction about Abu Hanifa. Um, anybody know how many hadith Abu Hanifa narrated? Someone throw out a number. I know Imam Malik did 1670. Maybe in what? That's how many he has in Muatta, but that's not how many he narrated. Oh, yes, 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 exactly. Yeah. No, I have not ever heard of Abu Hanifa. About 60,000. 60,000? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So there, people say he didn't have too many hadith to work with. You know, you know where that idea comes from? It comes from Western Orientalists. Oh, really? That uh, people of Medina were Ahl al-Hadith and people of Iraq were Ahl al-Ra'i. So, no, the actual difference is that uh, Imam Malik did not address hypothetical issues. 
whereas uh, Imam Abu Hanifa had, because he was from the, the school, uh, he's from Kufa, which is where Abdullah bin Mas'ud was. So that was a major center of learning. And, and the uh, a difference is that, uh, number one, they're in a non-Muslim majority society. And then number two, that they are also addressing every hypothetical issue they could imagine. Whereas Imam Malik is not addressing any hypothetical issues. If it happened, then he'll answer. If it didn't happen, he's not answering. Yeah, that's why that, you know, I think that um, Mu'tazilas and all those things actually use that and, uh, you know, the, the, the categorization of Hadith, right? Like the Za'if Hadith and Hassan Hadith and they said, oh, everything is says by Ahle Medina is more legit than anything said by uh, yeah. you know, Iraq. It's, that's also uh, has its own different sets of arguments um, because again, uh, Abdullah bin Masood is one of the closest of all of the Sahaba and, and you know, spent so much of his time. He like literally was taught all of the Quran except for the last two surahs directly by the Prophet, peace be upon him. Yeah. In any case, but the, but that's that's not addressing uh, your question, Brother Malahad. So, okay, so the the issue you're raising is a much 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 bigger issue. And in my limited diagnosis, the first problem is that practically speaking, we actually don't respect knowledge very much, and we don't ex- uh, we don't respect the bearers of knowledge uh, in the way that we respect, let's say, a physician. Yeah. And and a lot of that is just social psychology. So, you know, physician is often given the most respect. Underneath that is going to be maybe an engineer. Lawyers were beginning to respect a little bit. Usually we kept them at the bottom because we all saw them as, as liars and such. But ulama were often at the bottom in terms of the respect that we would give them. And part of that is lack of respect for, for knowledge. But in practice, it meant that, you know, we would donate a lot of money to make our masjid gigantic and beautiful and very little money to the to every, anything that is not uh, a masjid. So the most of our donations go to, you know, the, the building of the masjid. Second most donations go to relief issues overseas. And then even care, if you talk to Ahmed Rehab, he'll tell you he gets barely any donations. He struggles every year with the fundraising. And, 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 and so, the madrasas get very, very little money. Of course, there's a few. Dar Salaam gets a ton of money, but uh, but by and large, uh, they they have get very little money, which means they have very little resources. Yeah, but I think that just just back to Please, yeah. say that that you know Dar Salaam get a lot of money, but they're spending more most of the money just build just making the buildings. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so it's a problem. So so the point is that. If, if the whole industry of knowledge is not being given very much support financially or in terms of respect, then why would anyone go into those fields? And, and so, and if they're going to be our primary teachers, then what does that mean in terms of Dean for the children? And, and so it becomes this vicious circle getting lower and lower and lower. And, and so, uh, so the basic point is that, yes, everything you're saying is correct, that the, you know, the ulama should give the benefit of the doubt and should engage and, to be, and should be relevant um, in society. But think of, you know, how, how much we pay uh, uh, the imam of the masjid 
it's usually peanuts. And usually if it's a desi mushridge, the only requirement we're looking at is did you memorize the Quran? And so I'm saying that there's a, a fundamental problem in the appreciation of, of knowledge. I can hear 100,000 people give criticisms of ulama, but I find very few people that are actually giving support to the development of the infrastructure of knowledge in our community. Which means that so long as that's the case, then the next 100 years we already know what's going to happen. So is, is, this is some, uh, with the with the utmost respect to the ulama, I just want to say that, you know, because you just mentioned, so I think the, the, the previous ulama, the historical, like um, all the way to the names you mentioned, Abdul Qayyam and, uh, you know, Ibn Jawzi and, uh, you know, Imam Muslims, Bukhari, all those folks, they, they're actually looking for gathering the deen with the objectivity. They will take the, the, the Sahih Hadith and Sahih knowledge from, uh, from even for the Shia school of thought, right? And they can refuse uh, a Hadith is coming from a Sunni school of thought. Is this objectivity is missing nowadays? And then, you know, all those scholars are in a, like their own cohesive mindset and their small school of thought. It's like a no platform that they can just gather. So, and... so I mean, uh, I don't know if Mahan is still on the, on, the, on the call here, but he's more of an expert on this in terms of what's happening across the globe. But I would suggest what you're describing again is still a consequence of the bigger problem. Hmm. Because Imam al-Ghazali is living in a society where the scholars are getting paid big money. Yeah. The, the scholars are becoming, you become a scholar, then you become a civil servant in the government. And so a lot of people are going into scholarship for, for dunya reasons. That's one of the things he attacks. You know, whereas uh, there are not too many opportunities to, here to become a scholar for dunya reasons. As opposed to going into a, a, a regular field, so yeah, all those things. The what you're talking about is the sophistication of study and the sophistication of research. Uh, but if someone doesn't, you know, if someone doesn't have the training to respect it, it's probably because their their whole model of learning is focused on the bare minimums. Uh, Mahan, were you about to speak? Yeah, you know, uh, I don't have much to add, but we have a tendency to romanticize the past also. Like it was like this and now it's not. But I think maybe a couple hundred years from now, people will look back and say, man, it was so great. You had like Umar Muzaffar and Hamza Yusuf and Yasir Qadi, now Muhammad look at Yusuf. us. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah, an example from the other side. So, um, so maybe I just, you know, caution against that kind of, romanticization we have everything right now that maybe other people had in their time as well yeah. and uh, maybe we're not just looking at it um, the right way i mean but would it still be fair to say that uh institutionally um there's a lot more support to scholars in in much of our history wouldn't that be fair to say you know through endowments and such what do you think you know um I don't, I honestly don't know. I have to think about it, but there's a lot of support today also. I mean, we're flourishing in academic institutions here. Just look at Sherman Jackson or Ibrahim Musa, um, the Hamza Yusuf himself, but also in Indonesia, Malaysia, Qatar. Um, there's, you know, Saudi Arabia, we have our institutions. So I don't know if there's a, there's a, maybe there's a certain kind of support we, we, we want that is not there. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I would submit that's because of how we're looking at the, the problem. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, and Aman, thank you very much. That's, thanks for enforcing my point because see the modernity is at their time. Oh, sorry, traditional tradition is the modernity on their time. So that's, that's how the time works. Mm-hmm. That's my limited knowledge. Yeah, those things. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that, I, I think that that's, I like that framework. Like the, uh, in every age, there are problems that seem new. Uh, Martin Gwynn has a book, you know, on Islamic theology where he says, every age thinks that they're in a unique crisis. Um, so maybe, you know, there, there are a lot of changes that are taking place in our world, technologically driven. So there is, I think, a real case for newness to be made, but um, every age does feel that way. Yeah, uh, and just going back to, you know, the topic of the day, which was on the secularism, Muhammad Fadil has a really nice article. It's, um, if I can recommend that, it's on Islam and the challenge of human rights. It was published in Seasons, which was Zaytuna College's journal before its current incarnation, Renovatio. The older name was Seasons. And he really says the problem is all about when we're thinking about an Islamic policy versus a secular one. It's all about freedom of religion. And that's where the um, uh, that's where the line is drawn, and he and he suggests a way to reconcile that. So I recommend that article also. What's the name of the article? What's the name of the article, Mohammed? Islam and the challenge of human rights. I have a I have a copy. Can I you put it on the? Can you have, yeah. Can you yeah, have it? Yeah. Okay, Shalom. Any other thoughts, reflections? Uh, maybe if I could just add one thing. Uh, yeah, go for it. Namalikum Mahan. <laughs> Long time. Good to hear from you. Uh, this is Hashim Khan. Um, uh, Hashim <laughs> Yeah, very good to hear from you. Uh, I, I think, Umar, uh, isn't it there's, there's a hadith of Prophet that uh, he said that the scholars are the inheritors of uh, prophethood or something like that? Yeah, it's a, a very commonly cited hadith, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, so really that the, their level is really high, and I agree with you. I think uh, this is where people really ignore them and all that kind of stuff. Um, and maybe the, the some of the people that are criticizing them, but maybe, uh, maybe some of the scholars are not uh, really uh, realizing their status, what it should be. And uh, like I think you said that the uh, majority of them has become a, like a business. Uh, again, this is my thought. I might be wrong. And may Allah forgive me if I'm wrong. But I think they, uh, the scholars are really in Islam have been given a very, very high status. May Allah give all our scholars topic to fulfill their responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. The whole issue of 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 branding that's going on today is, is one of the, the, the big challenges. Anything else? Any other thoughts, reflections? Uh, a question. I, yeah. I remember you ha- had uh, given a um, refresher course once, and you were talking about when um, Muslim armies took over uh, the areas which were non-Muslims. 
uh, that you know they didn't really apply any any of the you know the rules on them. Uh, but we never hear any any um, much in much detail what Muslims did to those areas where there were non-Muslims under them. Is there a good resource for that? Um, and also, can you just uh, in a couple of uh, sentences just ex- describe like what did they do? Like, did they just yeah. govern them or put send some laws? So the policy that seemed to be under Omar. Uh, uh, was that they would set up Amsar, they would set up these garrison towns and uh, uh, officially not mingle with the locals. And a lot of times these garrison towns would grow and grow and they would overtake the local town. So Al-Qahira was a garrison town. The actual local town was Fustat. And then Al-Qahira through the generations grew and grew. And what would happen sometimes is that the, the Khalifa, so like the Umayyad Sultan, uh, uh, would, if someone is becoming Muslim, they would assign the new Muslims to a family to, to teach them, to nourish them, and all of that. Uh, but some of the Umayyad Sultans felt that they would get more money through jizya, um, and so did not push for conversion. Uh, Omar ibn Abdulaziz uh, is often looked at as a religious khalifa, and and so he changed the financial structure so there was financial incentive for people to convert to Islam, and so that could be one of the reasons why many people eventually did become Muslim. But for big big chunks of our history, you had uh, Muslims ruling over over uh, either people of the book or the Zoroastrians and such. And, so they, they don't have to comply with the, with the Islamic laws, right? Well, I mean, so depending upon the structure, so the, the famous case of the Ottomans where you would have, you'd have a chief rabbinical authority for the Jews, you'd have the chief Christian authority for the Christians. And, and we have some examples of that prior to the Ottomans. And so you would have to follow the codes, the, the traditions of your own community, except if it's a matter of something like a conflict resolution or something with someone outside. That seems to be the case, but uh, I'm sure if we looked at the past 1400 years, we'd probably find, you know, 300 different examples. Okay. Yeah. Again, the overall question, however, I'd raise, even though today, uh, especially uh, this is this is on me, is what is the relevance of of discussion of a Muslim government, you know, or for me sitting in Chicago in 2021? And I think uh, sometimes it's good conversation and sometimes we can get some insights, but I don't think it really, um, I think most of our discussions, and this is I'm speaking to, uh, to uh, all of us thinking out loud that I think a lot of times these discussions really are empty conversations. Bob wants to ask a question from his father's computer. Yes. I don't know why he's going to his father's computer instead of using his own. But... Assalamualaikum. So my question is that I have observed for some time that there's a lot of bitterness between Deobandi, uh, Barelvi, and those who follow Gandhi Saab and uh, those who also follow other other thought processes, uh, do you know why there's this bitterness between these groups, even though they belong to the same wider mazhab? 
Oh snap! You should you should go ask each of those people directly and see uh, <laughs> see what they say. And you're you're doing a good job of calling everybody out. Uh, the historical difference uh, in terms of the Deobandis and Brailvis is a mixture of a theological difference versus a mixture of what seems to be just the usual issues of power and influence. And the theological difference is what is the status of the prophet, peace be upon him, after the night journey. And and so hardcore Brailvi thought, and I could be wrong, um, is, is that uh, the prophet did not return, but return was the nur of Muhammad. So, for example, uh, Musab, who's your favorite uh, UFC fighter, living or active or retired? Habib. Yeah. So, what is Habib's name? His name is Habib Nur Muhammad. That's his name. That's not. It's not. He's not Brelvi. I'm saying it's a. a uh, even though he looks and acts like like a Salafi, he's coming from a lineage of of, of, of Dagestani Sufis, and 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 so that's the theological uh, disagreement. But the often the real disagreement is just we've been taught that we're the good guys and those guys are the bad guys. That's how a lot of this stuff happens. So those guys that are the Hari the Hari Pagadis, the HPs. You know, we're not supposed to pray with them. And then, you know, they think we're a bunch of Wahhabis. You know, that's usual dynamics of, of group loyalty. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So I wanted to go back to an earlier point um, from the class, if that's okay. That's you know, on the Amr bil Ma'roof, the point that Malahat made, that we don't have an opportunity to do this anymore. That was just a quick example with, you know, just this bystander syndrome where it doesn't apply. But the Michael Cook's book, um, you know, he discusses this in a lot of detail and he goes into questions like rebellion and correction of the government. And a lot of the stuff really translates into active executive citizenship, which is exactly what dem a democracy is um, structured for. And so if you think that there are certain policies that are wrong, you have to advocate for them. Then there's community organizing. Um, those are all, you know, things that can be considered Amr bil Ma'roof bil Yad. And so beyond just speaking out. So I just don't see how, you know, it doesn't apply today. Mm -hmm. In fact, it applies in, in total. Mm -hmm. At every level. Yeah, seems to be the case. Thank you, Mahan. I already ordered the book. I'm gonna come after you. Was oh, I good? <laughs> so, so uh, uh, either Mahan or or Malahat will teach us the book in the next class. Mahan, he's Mahan. <laughs> Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? So, so from the back. Uh... Uh, I'm sorry, Brother Iqbal, I'm having trouble hearing you. Sorry, I was saying that uh, Brother Mustaf asked about Brailvi Devani and Gamadi as well. I think you primarily, the, the, the primary difference would be uh, the, the night journey, but what about the Gamadi thoughts, uh, if you have any, in your so, own opinion? So 90% uh, of what I know 
is coming through a few people. One is through a cousin of mine who's very, very close. And another is all the times Malad asks me, what about this issue? What about that issue and such? And I don't know how much either of those are representative of, of his thought. What seems to be the case is, is that he's, uh, he's very critical of what I would call folk Islam, meaning how the masses will, will look at issues and, and he suggests that there's a lot of things that the masses take as, as, as sound parts of Islam that he's saying are completely phony or made up. That seems to be part of his outlook. Uh, part of his outlook seems to be uh, especially um, a different type of analysis of, of the Hadith literature. But um, in terms of his following, uh, it seems to be the same issue that, you know, we like this guy and we don't like everybody else. Okay, Jaco. Any other questions, thoughts? Yes. Yeah, I have one more from the last class follow-up lecture when you mentioned about the Sunnah tradition. You mentioned about Prophet slash Quran, and you mentioned some comment that he put Prophet first and Quran later. Can you elaborate on that one a little bit? Yeah, very, very important question. And so <clears throat> where uh, do we get the, the teachings of the Prophet from? We get them from the Sahaba, right? That part we understand. And where did the Sahaba get the Sunnah from? They got it from the Prophet, peace be upon him. Where did the Sahaba get the Quran from? They got it from the Prophet, peace be upon him. And they are also distinguishing what is wahi in terms of, of Quran, what is wahi outside of Quran. And then, you know, what are things that he did that we just might pay attention to? Today we'll use terms like wahi matlu, referring to the Quran, wahi ghayr matlu, referring to sunnah and that which is found in the Hadith. But the, the point I'm emphasizing is that whether it is Quran or Sunnah, Jibreel salam is speaking to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the Prophet is giving it to us. So the point I'm making is you can't separate the Quran from the Prophet. He's not just a mailman. It is also his biography. It is also his story. And he's the first audience of the Quran. Second audience would be the Sahaba, and by extension, the uh, the people of Mecca and Medina, and then the third audience would be the rest of us. Whereas when we imagine it, we put the Quran at the top, and then the Sunnah underneath, and 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 sometimes we confuse what is Sunnah versus what is Hadith and such. But what I'm saying, all of that, is the Prophet peace be upon him. Does that make sense, or is it still confusing? A little confusing. Okay. So imagine you are living in Mecca at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay. Where are you getting the Quran from? You're getting the, it from the Prophet. It's his mouth. And then where are you getting the Sunnah from? It is his actions. Now, if I'm determining what is the level of importance of an issue... I'm going to ask, okay, is this, is this Quran? Is this Sunnah? What is this? And then Quran's going to be on top. But what I'm emphasizing is all of it is coming through the Prophet, peace be upon him. None of it is coming outside of him. You know, even the Hadith of Jibreel, 
people are watching the conversation, but the attention they're giving it is because of the Prophet, peace be upon him. All of it is coming through him. He's the vessel. It's not, it's, uh, uh, I think it's probably easier if we don't overthink the issue. It's, uh, it's uh, just a very, very simple point. Okay. Thank you. Any other thoughts, questions, reflections? So, so I let's think uh, we still have one more Saturday, right? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we have next week, inshallah. Um, oh, we do have a next week? Okay. Yeah, yeah, we have next week, inshallah. You said that today was the last one. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I I didn't announce something I discussed with Malahat earlier, but we but I forgot to announce it is I was going to leave the door open for us to discuss for for two hours today, and then in potentially two hours next week. So okay, so let me let's uh, address uh, the question that that Malahat raised that that you know um, that I keep pushing back on. Uh, for all of you, uh, what are some of the benefits of this class? If the answer is zero, that's fine too. But uh, what do you think in terms of your dean, your practice, all of that? Because the point I keep pushing back on uh, is I don't see really the benefit, uh, much benefit uh, for, for most people to be studying things like secularism, modernity, and all of that. I think uh, a lot of it is, is you feel enlightened, but most of it is, is not useful. What do you all think? Assalamualaikum. So I think this class benefits um, me personally because it helps me understand the society I'm living in and helps me uh, like helps me observe the, uh, the experience I have lived in uh, in American society. Okay. So it helps me differentiate between the thought process of Islamic and secular thought processes. Okay. Uh Think about the point some more, and you don't have to answer right here on the spot, but think about what are some things that you notice are actual differences or similarities. Because a big part of my discussion today is that in the operation of a society, there may not be much difference. Any other thoughts? Hi. Uh, just... Uh... I like the, the discussion and then you kind of coordinating it. I really like and enjoy it. You do it, mashallah, very good. You know, uh, uh, Malahat, what do you think? And, 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 and you can be totally 100% frank, you know, you and I have had these discussions on and off for a while, but other people may not be. About the class? About about these classes, you know, like you know, the discussions you and I have even offline, right? Where, where I'm always saying, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think these classes are, I don't think these classes are very useful, but you're right. feeling that they're very important. And yeah, so, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, this this is very important classes because he this uh, the challenges and and the day to day life we are living in here, and then um, uh, while we are getting older, we like it or not, but you know, we we need to understand and uh, how to how to be like functional, you know, functional based attachment with the society and do something like a practical advices to our children to how to be close to the tradition and, and adapt the challenges of the society. So I think this more like enabling uh, the people around me, for me, that's, that's very important. And your thoughts, what do you all think? Um, I think it's, uh... 
it's it's good for especially people uh, from Iona. Uh, in terms that you know you you think about what you um, what you plan. I mean, what you think about when you think about Islamic government and you know what it what it might have been in the past and how we would be because of the environment uh, or the current type of uh, nation state that we have um, and how similar it might be uh, and uh, uh, especially like this last lecture uh, that in reality it's 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 mostly the individuals who um, who really drive any government and success of a government is more individual piety and spirituality uh, and effort rather than probably from top down even though that that does also make a difference but uh, if you don't if you don't feel like um, uh, like you should be honest in any society that society would collapse no matter what it is so it's it depends on that individual that is also very very important mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, uh, any other thoughts, reflections? I mean, so, so what is my benefit? My benefit is that a whole bunch of us old friends are all together and chatting. And so, whether it's just, you know, you know, general conversation uh, or this type of stuff, that part is is a lot of the fun for me. But I still feel like uh, there's other better uses outside of that of your time. Uh, Mahan, you were going to say something. Yeah. No, I think everyone getting together, uh, just the community aspect, um, the brotherhood is important. But the way I view a lot of this stuff is like, you know, it's a bit intellectual flexing of the muscles, stretching, sometimes sparring, um, which is important to keep yourself fit. Um, I think like the body atrophies, your mind can also atrophy. And so I don't necessarily think of this in terms of growing from point A to point B, but rather, and that, that can happen, and that's good for those people on that trajectory, but at least keeping us um, mentally fit. Um, and ultimately, this is all... Um, uh, I mean, the... the this will all come to fruition depending on the kinds of lives we're living. And so if, if uh, maybe I just speak in Tanzimi terms, if you're still engaged in the mission and seeking of ways to actively apply what we learn, then it'll make its way into our practice. Um, but if we're living our own lives kind of day to day, and this is a weekend, uh, you know, uh, kind of entertainment that's for every individual to kind of reevaluate what their life trajectory is so those are my very quick reflections mm -hmm. i mean yeah i mean relate to to what mahan is saying i actually think i'm probably the best beneficiary of the class i mean usually the teacher is anyway but um listening to the questions that people are getting giving and and such uh uh, one way to, to possibly make this point is let me think of a book that's uh, a lot more down to earth that we can possibly discuss later on. 
in in the calendar year at some point. I don't know if it would be immediately after Ramadan or, or later, and that might help make the point that I'm making. You know, it would probably be like a psychology book or something. But yeah, I mean, I also think uh, Mahan's making a, an interesting point that all right, if these are the topics, they will make their way into how you live your life and such. Your thoughts? I guess just the one thought is that please don't stop it. I think it's good. However, <laughs> whatever you want to do. Yeah, I, I think and Omar, I think one class you already agreed upon is that um, the topic we have last week about the companions and Islam 101 kind of class. Yeah, so the so one class that, that I was thinking about, let me know what you all think, is Islam 101 for, for old people. Meaning Islam 101 for people who have been Muslim their whole life. And uh, that I think you might find to be beneficial, inshallah. But the point that, that Malahat mentioned is that it might be hard for people's hard. egos with that title. But um, uh, Brother Wasim. Assalamu alaikum, Brother Muzaffar and everybody else. I just wanted to thank you. Jazakallah khair. Uh, excellent presentation. And uh, I really like the way you uh, presented it and your demeanor and your attitude. Uh, perfect. Jazakallah khair. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I think that we need a lot more people like you and these discussions uh, happening more often, inshallah. Thank, thank so you just so wanted to make sure I thank you for that. I appreciate that. for organizing it. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say Malahat gets, gets uh, even more credit, not only for organizing the class, but for forcing me to have this <laughs> demeanor. <laughs> look And look forward to learning more from you, inshallah. Inshallah, inshallah anything that we can share. You know, I appreciate that. Very, thank you very much for the nice comments. So, uh, so, so brother Omar, just, just yes. uh, one more one more from the follow-up. Uh, regarding the secular system you mentioned about yes. the CEO, CEO and banking concept, I'm still struggling to relate that concept in our Islamic, uh, in the modern or any traditional sense, how are we going to relate that aspect? That, that's, a, that's a really good question. So, so one point I'm suggesting is that the, so there's secularism as an idea, and that's some of what we've been talking about through this book. What are the ideas of secularism? And then the other is the actual modern structure of, of the modern secular system in which you have a central banking system and then a nation is given validity as a nation by becoming part of the banking system. And, and so if I pulled together enough clout and I wanted to establish a Muslim state someplace, you know, uh, it means I would also have the, the state bank, you know, let's say we call our country Islamistan, the state bank of Islamistan would have to be part of it. You know, and then I become part of the United Nations and all of those things as, as a state. So that's part of the modern structure. <clears throat> and then the other big point is that part of the design of the modern nation state is think of each state as a multi-level company. And so the mayor of Chicago as an administrator um, is the CEO of Chicago. And so Chicago then, like a business, takes loans whether it's from banks or, or, others, or other sources, the state of Illinois does the same thing. The United States does the same thing for its operations. And, and so literally every state, every municipality 
even though we might just imagine as a government for operations, is effectively a company. And, and that's more of a question of, of the specific style of logistics. But then that seeps into the imagination of the people where if you're contributing to the gross domestic product of the society, you're a hero. If you're not, then <clears throat> you're probably homeless or something. But the point is that what are the common questions people ask when they meet? What's your name? Maybe where you're from? And then what do you do? And what do you do is part of what is your contribution? But, uh, but that uh, the, the key point I'm just saying is that that's, that's the modern structure of the world. And if we really want to make things even more exciting, um, we often say that colonialism ended you know, with the establishment of the United Nations and all of these independent states, 1947, Pakistan gets established, India gets established, so forth and so on. I'm suggesting that it's just a new form of colonialism, that you have to become part of the banking system. So Imran Khan gave that really good speech a couple of years ago at the United Nations saying, someone before me took these huge loans and I have to spend half of my budget for the whole country paying the interest payments of these loans. And so I think that's actually where modern imperialism is. British imperialism was to go through the whole society, restructure the whole society. American imperialism is to keep you all in debt, keep every country in complete debt. Your voice is gone. My voice? No, I can hear no, we are We are hearing good. You have, you have a problem, Brother Malad. It's not, it's not me. So that's essentially the point uh, that I'm making. It's more just about the, the, the structure hear you. of... Hello, can you all hear me? Yeah, we can Hello? hear. We can hear. Oh, uh, I think brother. Me. Sorry. So, but in any case, yeah, so I was, I was saying that that's the, the modern structure of, of nations of the world. Because it's interesting uh, uh, that a lot of nations, uh, we speak about them getting chopped up, uh, but they don't. Uh, until the banks actually get split. So why is Iraq being kept as one country? Because its debt is still being kept. And once that part is figured out, then Iraq, Saudi Arabia, all these other countries will get split up into little pieces with their own banks. So, so uh, just this one thing, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier. So, um, just like uh, you know, uh, modern modernity. I think Mark Weber he said that you know it, uh, Christianity has a lot of, or Protestantism has a lot of to do with the, the new um, capitalism, like in terms of uh, you know being uh, very disciplined and stuff like that, or seeking God's um, happiness through success. So when you're successful, that means God is happy with you. Uh, but um, so the point is that uh, that when you when you have certain laws uh, and if you if you uh, fulfill or obey those laws with the true spirit, um, you know it has a different effect on society. Whereas if you're just complying with the laws and you're trying to get like the loopholes and uh, you know you are you are not really contributing to the society. So I guess one important thing is that uh, in any form of government is that to have a mechanism to have this uh, spirit to follow the laws, not just follow the laws and 
So it's very important for Islamic government, especially, you know, to, to have the, you know, the message of the Iman in the heart. Uh, otherwise, you know, you will, you can make any laws and it will, uh, it will end up being like, you know, any worse state that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, the question becomes, is it possible for a government to promote Iman? And if yes, what are the ways a government can promote Iman? It could be by sponsoring Masajid, it could be by sponsoring the educational system, it could be by the point you made earlier about messaging and such. But back to my earlier point, and I do think those are all ways that Iman can be promoted, but those are also ways that hypocrisy can also be promoted too. You know, that, okay, well, I want to be the Imam on the pulpit who's saying all these things. Uh, But where is most of our Islam found? It is in the personal relationships that we have with each other. And then, and then I mean, I can redo the drawing next time because I gave you most of the drawing. There's a big part of the drawing I left out. Um, the other part is our work in terms of improving everybody else's life. And, um, but those be, would be some of the big questions then. Um, how, do we, how do we nurture at the mass level the iman of the people? And these are questions that, these are, that I'm always wrestling with that I don't have uh, answers for. Okay, just like... Uh, in any case, yes. I know we're out of time. Just yeah, a quick question. Yeah. Um, you know, you've mentioned this a few times, like the countries are like corporations. And now in reference to the Middle East, that, you know, the breakup of Iraq and maybe other parts of the Middle East, but it could be contingent on national debt. This is a very interesting comment. I want to ask, where are you getting this from? Is there a particular work uh, or is this your own synthesis so someone talked about this so this is a uh, there's a bunch of writings on the idea of the market state and uh let me mm. let me go back and look in the on the shelf for for i'm remembering the, the the book covers but i'm not remembering the author names but that's where the the concept of the market state is where i started learning this from market okay one one good book like the best primer on this You can share. You can share it later. Oh, uh, you, uh, I missed the part right after you said one good book, and then it went blank. I don't know if it was everyone else or just me. Could you repeat it? Yeah, I know. I was asking if there's, you know, you have multiple references. Oh, you're asking me for one, one good like, book. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, inshallah. Like okay. a primer. Yeah. Yeah, I'll look for that, inshallah. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah. And the other yeah, questions. Can you share with sure. everybody? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Any other last thoughts, reflections, inshallah? Okay. So, so, so that's, next week. That's, yeah. no, the, I mean, that's actually a good point in a sense that a Muslim country will not be break into further pieces until they for, sorted out the, you know, depth crisis. That's the will of Allah, you think? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, just like, just like oil is the will of Allah, you know, you know. Okay, inshallah. Uh, so we'll continue uh, next week, uh, 10.30 Chicago time, inshallah, and we'll probably just make it another two-hour session. And we can even discuss uh, you, know, you know, the class that Mahan will be teaching after me, inshallah. Alrighty, on that note, we'll, we'll stop right here. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nasla tubi lake. May Allah tell where you are, inshallah, and we'll talk some more. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum